We are the Mystery History Podcast. I'm Allison. I'm Rachel. Welcome to episode 109 on the pizza collar bombing. Yeah. Y'all better buckle up. This is insane. It's wild. So wild. So many twists and turns. You don't know what's happening. You don't. You never see it coming. You never see it coming. But before we get into that, let's talk some business. Let's. Go ahead and what do we want them to do? As always, we would really love it if you could like, share, and subscribe to any place that you're able to do that. Facebook, Instagram. All of it. I don't know. <laughs> Other places that you Spotify. may be on the internet. Yeah. Yes, yeah. please. Please do that. Give us good ratings. Leave us comments. If you have suggestions feel free to inbox us and um, not give us bad ratings and put them in the yeah comments. <laughs> we say, yeah, a lot. And apparently people don't like that. So yeah, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fine. It's fine. We're not everybody's cup of tea and that's okay. But we really do appreciate the five-star reviews yeah. a lot. We extra appreciate those. And, you know, that person didn't say we weren't their cup of tea. They said they liked our content. Which is good. That's what it's all about. It really is. We're just over here doing the best we can. We are. Well, if you really like us and you want to give us money, you can do that. Always also an option that we very much appreciate. However, we're not going to ask you for money and not give you anything in return. That's right. Because we're not like that. No. We work hard for the money. Like that song once said. Who sings that? I don't know, but it was a freaking, it was a hit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, we do have a Patreon. We have a $2 tier and a $5 tier. Uh, Each one of those, you get a discount code for merch that's available on mysteryhistorypodcast.com. We have over what? 90 episodes, 90 plus episodes of uh, bonus content. For you. Yeah, we'll be recording our 93rd. Yeah, getting up there. Evening. Yeah. Most most of our episodes are about 30 minutes long. Sometimes we go crazy. Sometimes they're a little shorter, but you get more of the banter and craziness because we typically do those in Later. into the night <laughs> and we're both very tired. So if you'd like to hear those, go ahead and, and join us on Patreon. Check them out. What do we have coming up in like 44 days? We're going to Waverly Hills. Waverly Hills. Oh, I'm going to poop my pants. Overnight investigation. We need to get some, um, some ghost equipment. We really need to get our lives together. And like a hotel to stay in and things like that. You know, just a couple of necessities. But if you would be interested in going to uh, Waverly Hills Sanatorium with us, you can go to eventbrite.com. It's a six-hour investigation on August 27th. It starts at midnight and goes till 6 a.m. We will be there with a group of folks, and we're really excited about it. We are very excited about it. So please join if you can. Tickets, I think, what were they, 90 bucks a piece? I honestly can't even remember anymore. But that's a good deal for getting scared and for six hours i mean what more could you do for six hours at 90 dollars? you know yeah i'm here for it like several movies several movies 
3 3D action. Yeah. <laughs> One last thing we want to mention, um Rachel and I were emailed by a killing affair and they are a murder mystery game, okay? And they are com- they're an up and coming company and they asked us to uh review their game. I just got the box in the mail. Rachel and I are going to open it and do like a video of the unboxing and then um, we will play it. So I don't have anything to note yet. However, I want to get this out there because just the, I'm, I'm struggling not to open it. Do not open the box. We I got to know a sleepover <laughs> and you know that we're both busy. So you need to put that box up somewhere. I need to hide it from myself because it's so like, you know, it's like whenever people say, don't push the button. You got to push the button. You and better got, not open that box. <laughs> it's got beautiful tape on it that says a killing affair. So I know the stuff in there is good. Um, but anyway, if you guys want to check it out, it is www.akillingaffair.com. Just a little bit about the game. Like I said, it's a murder mystery game where you basically become the detective. So you work through secret messages, hidden clues and evidence, all while eliminating or naming suspects, uncovering motives and bringing justice to the innocent, which we all love. We're going to be so good at this game. We are. I'm just going to go off of like who I don't like their face more. Like, oh, you're the one. To begin with. Because I'm judgy. You are. I am. (laughs) Anyway, every box is packed with countless hours of gameplay and is great for any skill level. So this comes with like case files, police notes, newspaper articles, all kinds of stuff. They also have, um, I think, a monthly subscription that you can get different games each month. So that's an option for you too. But uh, we appreciate them. We're excited to do this. We just have to schedule a time to get together and then we will report back but I really like the box the tape is very nice I want to get my hands in there but I can't because I won't let you I know <laughs> very upset but one more time a killing affair.com this idea kind of like the idea of this kind of game kind of reminds me of escape rooms sort of because it seems like you have to dig through these mm-hmm. these clues I love that kind of stuff so I'm really excited we will definitely get together as soon as physically possible yes to be and, able to do this and we will solve the mystery and bring justice to the innocent I'm really excited that's what it's all about not only do I love sleepovers with you but this is really gonna take it to the next level right oh <laughs> <laughs> We are children. We are. All right. Well, do you have anything else to add for the business? I don't think so. Okay. Well, why don't you get us started on this crazy story here? I would love to. On August 28th, 2003, this is where our story begins. Brian Wells was a 46-year-old pizza delivery driver for Mamma Mia's Pizzeria in Erie, Pennsylvania. He had been a delivery driver for more than 10 years, so he's very experienced. Dedicated. Um, I would like to just pause here and say, do you feel like a bunch of shady stuff happens in Erie, Pennsylvania? Or is it just me? I can see that where you would believe that. Yes. Maybe there's nothing to do there. I can't even pinpoint anything outside of this, but I feel like I've seen and heard Erie, Pennsylvania, and it's got like 
you know like aliens i feel like or in eerie pennsylvania yeah. oh was that is it where eer- it is that's one thing i was gonna say i just get like some vibes it is the location to where one of the like way way back in the day that spaceship landed crashed and yeah then- all people, those people the government came to take it away and nobody saw it and yeah yeah we did a patreon episode on that yeah you're right that was i believe erie pennsylvania or at least nearby so that's funny yeah but anyways around 1 30 p.m the pizzeria received a call from a payphone from a nearby gas station the owner could not understand the customer and passed the phone to wells the customer said they wanted two small sausage and pepperoni pizzas to be delivered to 8631 Peach Street, which was only a few miles from the pizzeria. This address was the location of a transmitting tower uh, for WSEE TV, and it was at the end of a dirt road. Brian was at the end of his shift, but agreed to take this last order, and he left with the pizzas around 2 p.m. Did they know that the address was a transmitting tower before? I I don't know. I feel like Brian working there for 10 years, pizza delivery people. I mean, that was before cell phones were super big. So it's not like he could GPS it. So I don't know, but there are houses around there. So maybe he just figured it was one of the houses. Okay. Okay. Here's where it gets wild already. At 2.30 p.m., Brian Wells enters the PNC Bank at Summit Town Center on Peach Street. That's not where he was going to deliver the pizzas. He entered the bank with a short cane in his right hand and a strange bulge under the collar of his shirt. He -hmm. waited patiently in line, and once he made it to the front, he passed the teller a note that said, gather employees with access codes to the vault and work fast to fill a bag with $250,000. You only have 15 minutes. That escalated very quickly. It really did. He then lifted his shirt to reveal a box-like device dangling from his neck. The teller told Brian that there was no way that they could get into the vault in that amount of time. So she filled the bag with $8,702 in cash and handed it to Brian. Well, that is significantly less than what he asked for. (laughs) Far less, yes. But I mean, what are you going to do? Say, no, I'm not going to take this? Right. Obviously, he takes it. Yeah. But can you imagine if that was you and somebody put a bomb on your neck and said, get $250,000? And they give you 8,000. No, you I feel, freak out. I feel like I would be like, actually, I'm going to need you to get the $250,000. Right. <laughs> Your little light. Let's yeah, go. I don't, I don't know if you noticed, but. <laughs> oh, I'd be telling everybody I've got a bomb on my neck. Chop, chop. Like, right. Let's go. You can do anything in 15 minutes. Get it together. <laughs> Ooh. So, and that was a very quick turnaround time from the time he left to deliver a pizza to walking into the bank half hour 30 minutes yeah I can't even get anywhere in 30 minutes half the time I can't get these kids out of the house in a half an hour no like that's that's quick at 238 a witness called 911 from the bank and reported a man leaving the bank with a bomb or something wrapped around his neck after Brian is given the bag from the teller he exits the bank sucking on a lollipop 
they do get you with those lollipops. When you have a bomb around your neck? Maybe he figured it was his last meal. I mean, if you're going to steal eight grand, why not steal a couple lollipops too? Well, it's not stealing. Those are complimentary. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Touche on that. (laughs) All right. So the police arrive and see him standing outside his geometro. He is arrested, handcuffed, and left sitting on the ground in the parking lot. Brian tells police that three unnamed black people placed a bomb around his neck, gave him the cane that was also a shotgun, and told him they would kill him unless he committed the robbery and several other tasks. Which at that point, I would be like inconsolable. If you were Brian? Yes. Because there's no way you're going to get all of these tasks done and get them the money because you only have eight grand. And the police are like making Arrested. you sit on the ground in yeah. the summer. No. Yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. got a bomb around my neck. It's hot outside. I mean, no. I feel like if you have a bomb strapped to your body, you're in control of the situation. Right. right? Get up and walk. <laughs> yeah. And what are they going to do? Nothing. Probably shoot you though, right? I don't feel like they'd shoot at a bomb. I feel like I would shoot somebody if they had a bomb on them and they were coming towards me. You know, like in um, speed, yeah. You shoot the hostage, and you got to shoot them in the leg. <laughs> so then they fall over and they can't move. So, so that <laughs> option. I'm sure that Erie, Pennsylvania, doesn't have much uh, experience with collar bombings. Probably not. Does it anywhere? Really? I hope not. I hope that I hope- that's not like a thing. I hope not too. The officers, they didn't try to disarm the collar bomb, but they did clear the perimeter around Wells and made sure that Wells himself couldn't detonate the bomb. Brian pleads with the police saying it's going to go off and telling the officers he wasn't lying. The bomb squad was first called at 3.04 p.m. and police took positions behind their cars with guns drawn. TV crews began filming and Wells was sitting on the pavement for 25 minutes. Brian asks a trooper if anyone had called his boss, even in the state he was worried about his job. And then suddenly the device started to make fast beeping noises. Wells started fidgeting and he starts scooting backwards. So that was at 3.04. Okay. And then he sat on the pavement for 25 minutes. At Well, that doesn't like 20 minutes at 3.18, which was three minutes before the bomb squad arrived the bomb around brian wells neck detonated and blasted a fist size hole in his chest killing him in seconds the reason why the bomb squad was late is because traffic in the area delayed their arrival but personnel from atf still consider their response quick it was the police officer's fault that they created a traffic jam too. Cause they blocked off the area. Yeah. I don't know. It, it just, it's three minutes, man. I mean, even though if they would have got there three minutes after it, it's not like they would have gotten it off in that amount of time. You know what I mean? Like, no, but, but I wonder sucks. how, how long were they in traffic? Right. Well, they didn't call the bomb squad until three Oh four. And then they, they got there at what? Three twenty one. That is pretty quick. 
So yeah, I mean, not bad. But I when you're dealing with a bomb, the quicker got, the better. Yeah. <laughs> The bomb was homemade and had two parts. It had a triple banded metal collar with four holes and a three digit combo lock. It also had an iron box containing two six inch uh, pipe bombs loaded with double base smokeless powder. I have in the notes, pimp bombs. I have in the notes, pimp bomb, which would be just as explosive. Yeah, I, I was I was wondering what a pimp bomb <laughs> was. They smacked the shit out you with their backhand, you know. <laughs> the the hinged collar locked around his neck was like a big giant handcuff. For me personally, like I I can't even do um, that would be collars. enough to put me down. Yeah, I would have I a panic attack. Yeah, for sure. Even sometimes when the seatbelt like kind of nuzzles my neck, get off of me. Right. I, feel I couldn't bad. imagine. Um, it had been built using professional tools. There were two Sunbeam kitchen timers and one electronic countdown timer. And in the device, it had wires running through it that connected to nothing, which were like decoys to try to throw off anybody that was trying to disarm it. It was like a puzzle. So what it wasn't just motherfucker. like, right, <laughs> right. And and we'll we'll talk about this later, but I think that what draws this whole thing like it makes it so freaking nuts is that there's an evil genius documentary on Netflix. Rachel and I have both watched it. Just seeing the video of him like sitting on the pavement and like you can see him starting to get more like, all right, we got to get this out of here. Get me out of here. And then like essentially you don't see him explode so to speak but you see the aftermath no you do see him explode i rewatched the documentary today and that you know when you said you were going to do this and asked if i remembered it i had watched the documentary like last year probably and i have a terrible memory and i was like well that's the one where the guy guy's head blows up right and you're like yeah and i was like that's all i remember Yeah. But I think the only reason I remembered it is because there is a like less than one second flash of showing when it, when it blows up. Yeah. And you can't really tell what's going on because it's it's so quick. Yeah. But yeah. And it's not his head exploding. (laughs) Well, it's his chest, his chesticles, but, but yeah, either way, I mean, not good. And it is not good. And that sits with you and it's scary. Yeah. And the poor guy, like you feel so helpless for him because nobody's helping him. He's by himself. Nobody wants to go near him. He's basically sitting there having a conniption and nobody's consoling the poor guy. Mm -mm. I don't know. It just, it sucks. I'm pretty sure they were yelling at him. Like, don't move. Well, yeah, because, and he knows like it's going to go off. Like he can feel it. Oh, it was awful. Yeah. But that's on Netflix if anybody wants to watch it. It's it's a really good, aside from like the blowing up part, while yes, that sticks with you, the documentary itself is really good. Yeah, it's well done for sure. After Brian's death, police started sorting through his car looking for evidence. They found the two foot long cane that was handcrafted into a gun and handwritten notes that were addressed to bomb hostage. The notes told Wells to rob the bank of $250,000, then follow a set of complex instructions to find various keys and combo codes 
hidden throughout Erie. It had drawings, threats, and detailed maps. If Brian did what he was told and followed the instructions, he would get the key and combo to the bomb, which would free him. If he failed or disobeyed, it would result in death. The note said, there is only one way you can survive, and that is to cooperate completely. The powerful, booby-trapped bomb can be removed only by following our instructions. Act now, think later, or you will die. I could not imagine. That would be terrifying. And we have a picture of the collar bomb that he was wearing, and it looks like a handcuff. It does. Like a straight-up handcuff. Um, the police tried to complete the hunt themselves. So they took these notes and they started trying to go through them. The first note said, exit the bank with the money and go to the McDonald's restaurant, get out of the car and go to the small sign reading drive through open 24 hours in the flower bed by the sign. There's a rock with a note taped to the bottom and it has your next instructions. So after getting out of the bank, Brian actually did head to McDonald's and he got that note in the flower bed. And then he, he um, it directed him to Peach Street to a wooden area several miles away. It was a two-page note. Several miles away, there was a container with orange tape, which uh, held the next set of instructions. But Brian was caught before he was actually able to make it there. So he must have stopped and was like, what the hell is this? And then the police caught him. Oh, do you think so? I thought he was getting into his car probably to drive to the next location. I thought that he was picked up near the bank. But they I'm not sure. Outside his car. Yeah, but I'm not sure how close McDonald's and the bank are. You know, they're right mean? next to each other. Oh, I'm are sure. they? Okay. Yes. Then, yeah. So, yes, he was getting into his car after picking up the note. Yes, the police found the note and it directed them two miles south to a small road sign where the next clue was waiting in a jar near the woods. The jar was empty, which told police the criminals were probably watching this unfold the whole time and knew Brian had been killed and then went, you know, to take care of that note. Brian had died wearing two shirts. The outer one had a guest clothing logo on it, but he was not wearing it when he had gone to work. Police believed this was a taunt saying, guess who is behind this? Like, really? That's what you're going to do? That's what they're going to do. This is, I don't know, what's crazy. (laughs) And it's like some of the shit is petty. Like you're going to put a collar bomb on somebody, but then you're going to toy with them and put a guest shirt on them. Like, did they just have that in their closet and they're like, oh, this would be funny. Or is it like they went to the mall and purchased it to make and a statement? And like, this like, would be funny. <laughs> right. Like, I don't know. It's silly. I feel like if you're planning this whole ruse, that's like the last priority. Yeah. They're obviously paying t- attention to detail here. Yeah. yeah. Investigators combed the area where Brian had delivered the pizza to. They did find shoe prints that were consistent with Brian's shoes and tire tracks matching the Geo Metro. It offered no clues on who had apprehended Brian. The next day, a reporter with the Erie Times News headed to the tower, and it was, of course, blocked off by the police. 
but the journalist spotted a tall, heavyset man in denim Carhartt overalls pacing in front of his home that sat right next to the tower. His backyard extended almost all the way to the tower. The journalist went to speak to him, and he identified himself as Bill Rothstein. Bill was a 59-year-old, and he was an unmarried handyman who had lived in Erie his whole life. He was intelligent. He was speaking, you know, very fancy words mm-hmm. and saying them correctly, unlike me. <laughs> he knew French and Hebrew. He didn't know. I don't know how that worked into it either. Like, did they ask him that? I don't know. But <laughs> that's not a, a thing that comes up in conversation, <laughs> usually. Usually. He didn't know what all the fuss was about that was going on basically in his backyard. He led the journalists through his yard, but because of the thick brush, they couldn't really see anything. So they left about 15 minutes after they got there. Less than a month after Brian Wells' death on September 20th, Bill Rothstein called 911 and said at 8645 Peach Street in the garage, there's a frozen body. It's in the freezer. Within an hour, Rothstein was in custody. He told police that he had thought about killing himself and had even gone as far as to write a suicide note that police found inside a desk at his home. The note apologized to those who cared for or about him. The note identified the body in the freezer as Jim Roden, but that he did not kill him nor participate in his death, that his death had nothing to do with the Wells case. Which is a weird thing to say. That is a weird thing to say. When you have no connection whatsoever to this case. (laughs) Outside of being right next door to where it went down. was taken, right? And it was a month or a little less than a month after his death. So it wasn't like yesterday. Right. It was like, you know. A month later. Yeah. (laughs) You know what what guilty people say? (laughs) It has nothing to do (laughs) with what you think it does. Right. Over the next two days, while Rothstein was in custody, he explained how the dead man got into his freezer. He said in mid-August, his ex-girlfriend, Marjorie Dell Armstrong, who he actually dated in the 60s and early 70s, had told him that she had shot her live-in boyfriend, James Roden, in the back with a Remington 12-gauge shotgun over a money dispute. That's some serious business. He must have had, like, Uh a hole inside of his body. Yeah, for so sure. She, so she a calls lot. up Rothstein and he's she's like, hey, whoops, I need you to help me move this body. So he goes over there. Um, he she lives about 10 miles from him. So he goes over there, he agrees to help her, and he agreed to keep the corpse in his chest freezer for five weeks. You do Don't. that for your exes. <laughs> what would he do for his girlfriend? Like, dang, that is anything, serious. obviously. <laughs> Or don't have ex-girlfriends that shoot people in the back. Like, that's insane. It really is. Anyway. Yeah, so he has this this guy in his freezer for five weeks. He actually also took his time to help her. He melted down the murder weapon, the 12-gauge shotgun, and then he scattered the pieces around Erie County. That's some dedication. Mm-hmm. That's that not just, time. like, storing something in the garage. That's, like... No. Yeah. He said he could not go through with his plan to grind up the body. That's where it was like, nope, that's where my, my allegiance ends to you, woman. And he was afraid of what she might do to him. Yes. As you should be. 
<laughs> yes. I can't believe he was going to grind this guy up. I mean, at least he would have been frozen. So it wouldn't have been mushy. I bet that would melt real quick. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Yeah. September 21st, the day after Rothstein called 911, Deal Armstrong was arrested for the murder of Rodin. In July 2004, Bill Rothstein passed away um, from lymphoma. How much longer after this occurrence did that happen? Did he die or did he call? He died. So he called them in 2003, a month after, so September 2003. Oh. And then she gets arrested and then he dies the next year. Okay. I didn't realize he passed away that quickly after all of this started to unfold. Because in the documentary, he talks a lot. Yeah, they have him on camera a lot. I thought he was alive for a long time. Yeah. That's why I was like, wait a second. (laughs) Yeah. Now he died pretty, pretty Pretty soon into this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, January 2005, D.L. Armstrong pleaded guilty but mentally ill and was sentenced to 7 to 20 years in a state prison for Rodin. April 2005, the team of federal agents investigating the collar bomb got a call from the state police who had an officer that had just met with Deal Armstrong, and she said that Rothstein's suicide note that said that James Roden's murder had nothing to do with the collar bombing was a lie which we all figured because that's really a weird thing to put in there. Mm-hmm. Deal Armstrong said that it had everything to do with the collar bomb plot. She told them that if they could arrange a transfer from Muncie state penitentiary to the minimum security prison in Cambridge Springs, which was closer to Erie, that she would tell them everything she knew. Skills. Yeah. She's a business lady. She is a hot freaking mess. For being mentally ill, she is very, very, like, super cutting. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you would think, I think she was diagnosed bipolar and a bunch of other things. And you would think if you had all the that going on in your brain, that'd keep you busy. Nay, nay. She had the time to really think about things, like well, how think- things would unfold. <laughs> I think that she, her biggest downfall was her, um, she thought that she was the smartest person in the room. Yeah. That usually doesn't pan out super well for people. Yeah. Let's go over a brief history of Marjorie Deal Armstrong. So get to know this lady. She was one of Erie's most notorious figures, especially known for her string of dead lovers. In 1984, at the age of 35, she was charged with murdering her boyfriend, Robert Thomas. She claims she shot him six times in self-defense, and the jury acquitted her of the crime. Four years later, her husband, Richard Armstrong, died of a cerebral hemorrhage, and the death was ruled accidental. Hmm. Hmm. Weird. 
Weird. According to Marjorie's high school classmates, she was known for her intelligence and was an encyclopedia of knowledge in literature, history, and law. Over the years, that brilliance sparked into madness. According to the court, she suffered from bipolar disorder and had sharp mood swings. She appeared to be unable to control her rapid fire speech and was paranoid and narcissistic. Yes. And a lot of that, most of the time, the people that are super duper smart are freaking nuts. I don't know if it's because like their brain can't handle all the stuff that they know or what, but it happens a lot. I don't know either. I, I work with somebody who has a photographic memory. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And I've said to him before, like, that's amazing. Basically, like, is that cool? Like, how does uh-huh. that feel? And he's like, it is misery. Because I'm sure it's exhausting. I, I bet. I mean, I'm not sure exactly why it's misery, but, you know, I have a terrible memory and it helps me let things go very quickly. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Cause I bet, well, and I, I would feel like it would be like sensory overload all the time. You would just be constantly looking at everything. Like, cause I get that way sometimes. Like if I'm in a public place, I think we talked about this whenever I went to Golden Corral and it was just, there were so many people <laughs> and, <laughs> and I just got overwhelmed. Like it was loud. There were so many, I'm a people watcher. Like I like to know what's going on. And whenever there's a bunch of people, you can't, you can't know what's going on everywhere. So you just get like irritated. And that's like a a sensory overload of what's happening right here. But imagine if you could remember everything and never let it be able to like, let it go. Yeah. Like what does your, or just like every memory, everything that's ever happened to you, you can remember very specifically. And like, you can remember all your college textbooks because you read them and it's all in there. Like, how would you have room for anything else? I don't know. My brain got taken up sometime in the early two thousands with song lyrics and that's all that's in here for long term. (laughs) I agree. And you know, that's probably the best thing to have in there. Cause how do you get to sleep? I mean, how do you shut your brain off? I have a hard enough time and there's not a lot going on. Right. In 1984, investigators found 400 pounds of butter and more than 700 pounds of cheese rotting in her house. Minus the rotting. I am here for it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of jealous. How do you get 700 pounds of cheese? Where, what store do you that. go to? Where, what store sells? Yes, I'll take the 700 pounds of cheese, please. <laughs> Psychiatrist deemed her mentally incompetent before a judge finally ruled that she was fit to be tried for the Robert Thomas case. So that's her backstory. So let's go back to 2005. She met with federal investigators for interviews, or I'm sorry, when she met with federal investigators for interviews, she insisted that she was not involved in any way, but she knew about everything (laughs) and had supplied the kitchen timers that were used in the bomb. She admitted that she was within a mile of the bank at the time of the robbery and said that Wells was not just a victim but had been in on the plan along with Rothstein. She claimed that Rothstein masterminded the whole thing. She had no part in it, but she just knew everything about it. 
well, that's got to be some form of negligence. Right. Not, not a <laughs> reporting a crime. Right. I would assume. Not really, really sure. Do, do we talk about it later? Do you think that, um, what's his name? Well, Brian Wells. Do you think that he was a part of it? Do we talk about it later? I, yeah, we talk. Yeah. Let's okay. hold that. I'll save it. I'll save we, it. It's just like a sentence, but then we can talk about wanna, where we feel with that. I just want to make sure we get the opportunity. Yes. All right. As Deal Armstrong talked to investigators, she started implicating herself. Because when you're guilty, you're guilty. And if you like to talk, you're in trouble. Yep. Can't <laughs> stop. You need to shut your mouth. Yeah. If I'm ever involved in a crime, that's what will happen to me. I will just talk myself <laughs> into more trouble than I am ready for. I am sure. Investigators believed that she was actually the mastermind behind the collar bomb plot. The police met with four separate informants that claimed Armstrong had talked about the crime with them in detail. So these were inmates. Yeah. There were people. Yep. Her like sellies that she couldn't shut her mouth and talk to around Mm -hmm. like sit right back. Let me tell you my life story. Let me tell you a story. One informant had kept notes of their conversation and said that Armstrong said she killed Roden because he was going to tell about the robbery and that she had helped measure Wells neck for the bomb. So that's a bitch that was waiting for an opportunity to get a lighter sentence. Let me write the this one shit with the down. notebook. <laughs> Let me write this down. She here. was ready. Can you talk a little slower for me? Right. In the documentary, it says she's literally taking notes in front of Deal Armstrong. So like she knew that she was writing well, she, it down. Well, Armstrong was probably like, this bitch thinks that I'm like the best. And she's trying she's to take notes, notes on how to be like me. <laughs> probably. Freaking that idiot. narcissistic personality. Bitch every time. <laughs> Be humble, folks. <laughs> Be to save humble. your life. <laughs> so late 2005, a witness came forward to say that an ex-television repairman turned crack dealer named <laughs> Kenneth Barnes <laughs> was involved in the plot. What a segue. What a resume. <laughs> Holy. Like, you know, I mean, I'm sure television the crack- repairman crack dealer (laughs) the crack dealer probably pays better i bet Uh, i'm sure but barnes so barnes was an old fishing buddy of armstrong and he had spoken to his brother-in-law about the plan barnes was already on in jail shocker on an unrelated drug charge and was threatened with even more time behind bars if he didn't talk to investigators about what he knew he agreed to a deal and would give the full account of the crime in exchange for a reduced sentence. Everybody's just out looking out for number one here. I mean, These you got people. to. <laughs> Especially if you're in trouble already, you're probably thinking, shit, like, let me get Here's over on chance. this girl. Yep. Mm-hmm. You can't trust crack dealers, folks. No. You can't. Not great secret keepers. That's going to be a new t-shirt. You can't trust crack dealers. (laughs) Right. We're out here making people learn something new Mm -hmm. every day. Barnes confirmed that Armstrong was the mastermind behind the plot. She needed the cash so she could pay him to kill her father. And the (laughs) plot thickens. Dang. 
just keeps <laughs> raveling. It's like an onion. It really is. Um, who she believed was blowing his fortune. She expected to inherit his money. So she was not okay with that. Barnes was kept out of some of the plot, but his account was able to corroborate much of what the investigators already knew. On February 10th, 2006, agents met with Armstrong again, who had brought her attorney. The agents told her they had enough evidence to bring an indictment against her. She exploded. No pun intended. <laughs> oh, Is that a bad joke? Too soon? Too soon. <laughs> Too soon. Sorry. This is a good one. It was slamming her fist on the conference table and cussing out both agents and her lawyer. Even after the outburst, she continued to speak with them. (laughs) (laughs) She couldn't stop talking. Yeah. What a mess. At another meeting, she agreed to drive around Erie and point out where she was the day Wells robbed the bank. At the end of the drive, she admitted to being at several locations linked to the crime. Idiot. Come on. Armstrong told agents she wouldn't provide any more information until she received an immunity letter, but it was too late. (laughs) (laughs) She couldn't stop talking and already had said so much. Yeah, like I was there. I was there. I was there. I measured his neck. (laughs) I told you the entire story, but if you give me an immunity letter, (laughs) I got some more. Unnecessary, ma'am. July 2007, about a month short of the four-year anniversary of the Wells Collar bomb death, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Erie called a news conference about a major development in the case. U.S. Attorney Mary Beth Buchanan announced, I was about to call her Buccaneer, that's wrong, (laughs) announced that the investigation was over and that Armstrong and Barnes were charged with carrying out the crime. It also charged other conspirators, Rothstein and Wells. So they think that Brian had something to do with it. Mm -hmm. After thousands of interviews and over the course of four years, the indictment showed that Wells was in on the plan from the beginning. He agreed to rob the bank wearing a fake bomb and that the scavenger hunt was a ruse to fool the cops. If he was caught, he could just point to the instructions and say that he was following orders. Unfortunately for Brian, They also believe that it was a double cross situation. So he was in on it, but the fake bomb actually turned out to be a real bomb. And the scavenger hunt went from just being clever to real where he had to race against the clock. Brian's Brian Wells family was stunned by the accusation. His sister, Barbara white screamed liar after Buchanan completed her statement. So this is kind of where we talk about that's, wells i could see it being a double cross situation Mm -hmm. and we do talk a little bit more about i think about why he needed the money so let's continue on here yeah there is some more i was gonna bring up some of those points i didn't know if you hit on it in a little bit so perfect Weeks later, the FBI confirmed that the scavenger hunt was a hoax and the bomb was rigged in a way that any attempt to remove it would set it off. Wells was never meant to survive. That sucks. That's awful. So there was no key somewhere. He 
either way, if it was a double cross situation or if he was just some unlucky dude, like that sucks. That does. And especially if he was in like a double cross situation, like they really, I mean, not especially, but they really didn't give him any opportunity to get out of it. No. Well, I'm sure from their thought, it was just another person that they'd have to split the money with or another person that would roll over on them. Yeah. September 2008, Barnes pleaded guilty to conspiracy and weapon charges involved in the collar bomb plot. He was sentenced to 45 years behind bars, but agreed to testify against Armstrong to try to get his sentence reduced. Deal Armstrong's case was not as cut and dry. The federal judge ruled Armstrong mentally unfit to stand trial. When she was finally deemed ready to face the judge, she was diagnosed with glandular cancer. So the proceedings were put on hold again as she waited for doctors to give her her prognosis. The judge received the doctor's assessment in August 2010 that said she had three to seven years to live and the trial rescheduled for October 12, 2010. Yes. So Deal Armstrong's lawyer, Douglas Chagru, let her take the stand, which was dumb because she can't shut her freaking mouth. That seems like a bad idea. Yeah. Marshall Piccadini was the prosecutor and he had seven former inmates who was incriminating her (laughs) for stories that she (laughs) shared with them so she was telling literally everybody because you only room with like tops four people (laughs) in a cell so she was telling everybody he's in the yard at lunch in the shower yep (laughs) Ken Barnes took the stand on day five and said that Armstrong had devised a plan and enlisted a few co-conspirators to help carry it out. Rothstein was one, Wells was another. Both were lured with a promise of a big payday. The reason why Wells needed money is because he was dating a prostitute with a crack addiction. He gave her crack and then she gave him sex. That's not what happened. That's what they said. He... There was like a three situation going on. He would pick her up, take her to the crack house, have sex with her upstairs. He would pay her. She would get crack at the crack house and then they would leave. (laughs) So, okay. It was a menage a trois. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Like all of it occurred at the crack house. (laughs) Okay. So it wasn't really his girlfriend. It was. And it, you're right. That is, I mean, that is what happened. He gave her crack for sex, but it but also was all her. in the one house. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like they were, you know, driving around town, going to movies and shit. This was strictly a prostitution situation. One stop shop. Yeah. A few weeks before the robbery, Wells went into debt with the crack dealer and needed cash. Well, only Wells only knew he had been double crossed when he tried to run away at the pizza delivery and was held at gunpoint and locked into the collar. I don't know if I was in that situation, what would you rather do? Take a bullet or put a collar on? I'm taking a bullet. Do not That's put what something I'm like saying. that around my neck. That's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe in the off chance you'd get the collar off, but I would much rather be shot than have my chest blown up by a bomb around my neck. Oh, for sure. And being super uncomfortable, too, because nobody wants that shit around their neck. Mm -mm. 
I mean, that is why I would take a bullet, even just saying like, we're going to put this collar on your neck for an extended period of time. Yeah. I don't, I don't need that in my life. Just shoot me. (laughs) If somebody told me to wear, what are those things? A turtleneck? (laughs) I think I'd rather take a bullet. I'm running away from that. (laughs) I'm not going to do it. No. Yeah. Um, to, to back up on this, cause again, I just rewatched the, um, documentary again. Do you talk at all about this girl? The that prostitute? Was, yeah. No. Anymore? No. Because she gave a confession. Oh, did she? Yeah. And it's part of the documentary. And she basically said that she was part of this because I think her crack dealer was Ken Barnes. Yeah. I think that, yes. And he told her that they needed a, like a, somebody simple to do this. And she said, well, I know this guy. How about Brian? Like, I'm not saying that he had any sort of like mental issues or anything or slowness or low IQ or any of that. Cause I don't know, but I know at the very least he like did things to like make her happy yeah. that you shouldn't do. Right. And like I mean, fire crack. I mean, right. For instance, <laughs> one of many things, the elephant in the room. It's the right. Crack. And you know, I, I do wonder about that. Like I, and she later came back and said that, like, I saw a news article that it wasn't true that she had lied. I don't think she was lying. I mean, it, it, it checks out. It makes sense. Yeah. And so I think he did know that he was doing this sort of. Yeah. Like, I think he knew a little piece but of not it. not for real. Right. Yeah. And That's I don't sad. think he was like involved in the planning or anything. I do think that he got taken. Yeah. Basically. Armstrong hated Barnes's testimony and kept blurting out liar she actually received several warnings from the judge to stay quiet but she just can't she just can't october 26th the eighth day of the trial deal armstrong finally got her chance to tell her side it took her five and a half hours over two days to explain her side of the story she (laughs) really took took it all and wanted to tell what she wanted to tell Her wavy black hair was greasy and stuck to her face. She looked a mess. Uh, Within the last 10 minutes of her story, she only had this to say about Brian. She said, I never met Brian and I never knew Brian. Never. I became aware of him the day that he died. I saw it on the news. Okay, sis. Right. Nobody believes you. P.S. She shaved her eyebrows off. (laughs) I mean, I get it. so she looked extra crazy. Yeah. Because I mean, midlife crisis her eyebrows. makes you do weird things. I, I cut my bangs. She shaves her eyebrows. I don't know. Do not shave your eyebrows. Oh, I would look so weird. <laughs> you, you really would. <laughs> They're so prominent. <laughs> they are. It's a major, major feature. Got of some your caterpillars on here. Don't do it. 
The jury didn't buy any of her testimony, and after deliberating for 11 hours, the jury of seven women and five men turned in a guilty verdict on all three charges, armed bank robbery, conspiracy, and using a destructive device in a crime of violence. On February 28, 2011, she was sentenced to life in prison to be served consecutively for killing Rodin. In November 2012, the Court of Appeals affirmed her conviction. In January 2013, the Supreme Court denied her petition to review her case. December 2015, she lost a second appeal of her conviction. Isn't it sad that even if Brian was involved in this, nobody got in trouble for his murder? That is really? sad. I mean, nobody, yeah. nobody paid that. It was armed bank robbery, conspiracy, and destructive device. It was not yeah, murder. She, she was never charged for that no one was yeah that is sad so this this is what a wild wild ride i mean it's got everything pizza explosions narcissists crack everything all the great things in life (laughs) everything So to cite my sources, I use wired.com, wiki.com, wbur.org, mentalfloss.com, heavy.com, and then the evil genius, uh, the true story of America's most diabolical bank heist on Netflix. And I just want to pop in there because this is a great movie. 30 Minutes or Less is loosely based on this, and it's really good, and I highly recommend it. I've never even heard of that. Oh my god. It's got um Jesse Eisenberg. Is that the guy? Is that the kid? He's in Maybe. it. Maybe. Maybe. And uh yeah, it's really good. It's about he's a pizza delivery guy and he gets wrapped up in this crazy bomb thing. It's good. Is that a comedy or an action? Yeah. No, it's comedy. Maybe I have seen a preview for that. It's like old then, right? Yeah, it's yeah, it's probably 10 years old. Interesting. Maybe. When was this? <laughs> when, I'm bad with time. Like, is it even possible to be 10 years 2003. old? 2003. So, yes. yeah. 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 That checks. That does check. <laughs> Definitely okay. possible. This was like 20 years ago. That's crazy. <laughs> that Ugh. is crazy. But, yeah. What? I mean, super, super interesting. Lots of twists and turns. Mm-hmm. I, it's crazy. And we'll never know any more about it because Marjorie Deal Armstrong died in 2017. And Brian Wells, he's dead. And so is Rothstein. Yeah. So, I mean, really, it's just her and uh, Barnes. Yeah. He wasn't looking too good during the documentary, so he might also no longer be with us. Yeah. On this plane, but it would be probably... Oh, yeah, he passed away. Wow, so literally nobody. Nobody. Nobody else to to spill the secrets. I want to know who built that bomb. I think it was Rothstein. I think it was, too, because he was smart. Like, he was... Handy and... New Hebrew and shit. Tricky. Yeah, yeah. Sneaky sneak. Mm, I don't know. It's a crazy story. And here we are at the end of it. So what did we learn from this story? We learned, don't take crack. Don't do crack. Take a bullet over putting on a collar bomb. Nine times out of ten. Gotta do it. Um, Mm -hmm. Don't mess around with prostitutes. 
and get don't in deliver debt. pizza to places that should not be getting pizza. If it's a dirt road, you bail out. Bail out immediately. The not tip is not going to be that good. Nope. That's about it. I mean, and if you're a narcissist, keep your shit on lock. Yeah. Don't tell everybody and their brother what you did. Don't do it because they will. They don't keep inmates do not keep secrets well and if they start taking notes that's you not know you're thing. in trouble <laughs> they are and, not emulating you and if they have you sign it <laughs> it's double whammy don't do it okay and that's well, what we learned today that is what we learned so what did you learn let us know we need to know we do and watch 30 minutes or less and tell me what you think of it All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode 109 on the pizza collar bombing and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.